And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, force five. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast, the show where I challenge my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we reveal our picks on air. I am your host, Jason Kleberg, and today my guest is Kevin Montez. He's a music critic and owner of The Weekly Coos, a music blog, and today's show is a little more lighthearted than some of these typically are. We're going to be talking top five comedies of the last ten years. Before we get to that, we've got some stuff on social media to go over, and I've got a few things that I've seen that I want to mention. Last week's topic was Top 5 Weapons with Victor DiMattia from The Sandlot, and again, a lot of responses on social media. Of those that weren't mentioned on the show, friend of the show Pete Abeta from the Middle Class Film Class says, Johnny Mnemonic's Fingernail Whip, the, the nail whip from Johnny Mnemonic, that is a movie that I have not seen since, shoot, probably 1995, and uh... I'm I'm definitely going to have to look that up on YouTube because I don't I don't want to sit through that movie again. Over on Twitter, Thor Ath. Thor Ath. Great great Twitter name. Uh they said Dirty Harry's Magnum. The 44 Magnum from Dirty Harry. Good weapon there. Over on Reddit, I hate working 20 said Judge Dredd's gun, the lawgiver, and Hellboy's gun, the good Samaritan. Good choices there. Man in Dumpster says always loved Freddy Krueger's glove. We have the Razor Boomerang from Road Warrior. That's from Negative Gravitas. Big Head Rob says any love for the Noisy Cricket from Men in Black. Max Ren's Fleshy Pistol in Videodrome says Depth Noir. Glittering Charred 7342 just says Jackie Chan, and I can't argue with that. And Cape Shit Connoisseur, Cape Shit Connoisseur says Long John Silver's Robot Arm from Treasure Planet. I saw a couple things this week. We're going to start with... 2021's The Card Counter. There is a weight a man can accrue. This is where all the good stuff happens. The weight created by his past actions. It is a weight which can never be removed. All in. You count cards, right? I'm not that smart. But you win. You need someone to stake you. That's what you do. You run a stable. I'm always looking for a good thoroughbred. (laughs) Fresh out of prison, William Tell hits Atlantic City. In the clink, he learned how to count cards, and he's working casinos for small purses in order to stay under the radar. Bet small, lose small is his motto. When he meets La Linda, a gambling stable runner, and Kirk, Kirk with a C, a lost young man with an abusive past, Tell starts down a path that could lead to redemption or a much darker place. Paul Schrader's First Reformed was a very interesting film that has definitely stuck with me, and his past scripts like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull are considered some of the best films of all time, so I'm always up for a new Paul Schrader film. I'll start with the best thing about The Card Counter, and that's Oscar Isaac. Isaac is such a talented actor, and he really conveys so much with his facial expressions alone. He's fantastic here as the tortured William Tell, a man who never thought he would be conducive to a life behind bars, but now finds himself as kind of a fish out of water faced with the freedom of the outside world. The first time we see William Tell, he enters this really seedy motel room and strips the space of anything resembling a home, wrapping everything in white sheets for a sterile, cold environment. Ty Sheridan plays Kirk, with a C, a man on a mission of revenge. 
He's also an extremely talented actor and plays well against Isaac as this kid just kind of along for the ride. Tiffany Haddish is the third part of this trio, and unfortunately, she just doesn't have the acting chops to keep up. It always feels like she's acting, and being matched up with a master like Isaac doesn't do her any favors. Traditionally, Tiffany Haddish has been typecast as the loud, hilarious part in the movies that she's in, but here she's very subdued. Her best moment comes when there's a bit of disappointment regarding her relationship status with Tell. Schrader mainstay Willem Dafoe is here as well. He's probably listed on the poster, although he's only on screen for like three minutes and probably shot all of his scenes in one day. Acting aside, I hate to say this, but Schrader's script and direction seemed kind of weak. I noticed it right in the beginning as we see some visual overlays on the screen during a game of blackjack and they seem so plain and boring. I know there's a better way to show the nuances of a blackjack game on screen. It also seemed a bit weird that the titular card counting didn't really even come into play past the first 20 minutes, as the rest of the film is centered around poker, in which you're playing against other players instead of the house. Kirk offers a chance at redemption for Tell. He takes the young man on the road from casino to casino in a bid to preoccupy his mind so that he lets go of this thirst for revenge. I thought that part of the film was pretty interesting, even if the relationship didn't seem quite strong enough to go where the film forced it to in the climax. Lalinda and her competing storyline, her attempt to get William into a high-profile games, was pretty uninteresting and even completely unnecessary. If her character never entered the frame, it wouldn't really have made any difference at all, and it would have allowed William to form a greater bond with Kirk. A side plot seemingly pitting William against an annoying Ukrainian poker player dressed in over-the-top United States garb goes nowhere, although I assume that's kind of the point based on Tell's experience as a small cog in America's brutal war machine. Despite a powerhouse performance by Oscar Isaac, the card counter is a tale as forgettable and as unremarkable as a stroll through the casinos in the film. Haddish feels like she's in a completely different movie, the climax of this thing is confusing in both how it's shot and what its purpose was, and when the credits roll, you'll realize that none of the characters grew in any meaningful way. It's a morose character study that has little to do with the card game backdrop, and although I can see that some of the reviews are polarizing, I can't recommend this film when there are so many other better things you could be watching. If you're an Oscar Isaac fan, go check out A Most Violent Year instead. I also saw 1981's Prince of the City. His name is Detective Danny Jello. We make cases, there'll be big ones, you'll be the state star witness. He sees life as we will never see it. If I decide to do this thing, I will not give up my partners. He is Prince of the City. Detective Daniel Cello, Special Investigating Unit, Narcotics Division, Your Honor. Is it common practice to sell narcotics in the Narcotics Division? We're not dope dealers, we're policemen. He's seen too much. Was Moscone a partner? He's a friend. He's federal level. I want him. He knows too much. Your people are out to get you worse than anybody on our side. He said too much. In their hearts, they want to admit their guilt. That's the way cops are. That's how you got here. He's gone too far to stop. Wait a minute, I'm a cop! Come on up! Look at him! Treat Williams is Prince of the City. Prince of the City is based on the true story of New York police officer Robert Liucci, who was part of an ultra-corrupt special investigative unit for the Narcotics Bureau before turning federal informant. In 1973, Sidney Lumet directed Serpico, a film about whistleblower Frank Serpico and his struggle to out corruption from within the New York Police Department, but he always felt that the police in that film were too two-dimensional. Prince of the City 
was his attempt to rectify that portrayal with a more nuanced look at people within the New York law enforcement machine. Treat Williams, a guy I normally think of as the actor who plays the main character in a sequel that they couldn't get the lead actor back for, plays Officer Danny Cielo, the SIU team leader despite being the youngest on the squad. He initially balks at the thought of becoming an informant when he's first approached, but his conscience seems to get the best of him as he ventures out into the pouring rain one night to rob one junkie just to keep another one of his junkie informants straight. As he begins his journey as a rat, he makes one thing clear. He's not going to work against any of his friends. Inevitably, that request gets more and more important as the investigation gets deeper and the circle of corruption gets smaller and smaller. Treat Williams does a lot of heavy lifting here as a lead. Unfortunately, his performance is highly uneven. When he's more subdued, he's actually really great, like in a scene where he just watches a junkie slap around his lady because she did all of his drugs. When Danny gets amped up, though, Williams overacts, sometimes to the point that it feels like he's in a parody of a traditional cop film. It feels like he's trying to do his best Pacino impression, but mixed with Mr. Orange bleeding out in the back of a Cadillac. Al Pacino was actually the first person approached by Lumet for the lead in this film, but turned it down due to its glaring similarities to the Serpico role he was nominated for just eight years prior. The rest of the cast is filled with late 70s character actors and faces that you're sure to recognize. Jerry Orbach plays Gus, Danny's teammate and best friend. James Tolkien, who you definitely recognize from Back to the Future and Top Gun, plays George Polito, a bulldog working for the district attorney. He and Orbach have a powerhouse scene together and really display both of their acting chops as Orbach literally flips a fucking table over. A young Lance Henriksen is even here as a district attorney. There are a ton of speaking parts and everybody pulled their weight. Apparently Bruce Willis was even an extra in this film, but I was looking for him and I didn't see him anywhere in the background. Now, Prince of the City feels epic, both in the time it spans within the story and its actual runtime. The version that I saw was a hair under three hours long, and apparently there was a four-hour cut that ran on TV in the mid-1980s. And that doesn't surprise me. This felt like a TV show that was cut up and run as a movie, and I definitely feel like it would be more fleshed out with more time and more story to tell. I thought it was going to be about Danny's struggle with becoming a rat or not, but it's more about the consequences of his actions as time rolls by. It feels like a realistic portrayal of what cops like Robert Liucci and Frank Serpico went through in the 70s. And watching this film in 2021 feels like a bit of a game of emotional tug-of-war. On one hand, you can't help but feel for the dirty cops who are starting to feel the squeeze, brothers-in-arms who now have had one of their own turn against them. But we've also seen so many examples of police not being held accountable in real life that the film's message of, become a rat and you're going to lose all your friends, all your respect, and might end up dead, is kind of a tough pill to swallow. And I guess that's the point. Lumet's excellent direction paints a picture using shades of gray and positions each character to be a hero or a villain, depending on where you're standing. And be forewarned, like many films that came out during this time, it's filled with blatant racism and a general disregard for anyone who's not a white male. I'm surprised that this film never got more critical acclaim. It was nominated for just one Oscar, Best Adapted Screenplay, which it lost to On Golden Pond. It's an epic that fits right into the same lane as films like Serpico, The Godfather, and even Once Upon a Time in America, but for some reason never got the respect that it deserved. I think that anyone in a gritty crime thriller set in the five boroughs should definitely check this film out. Interestingly enough, the first attempt to tell this story was written by Brian De Palma, who was working with Orion Pictures. He planned on having Robert De Niro in the title role, and I bet that if he was, we'd all know this film. In an interesting twist of fate, when De Palma left this project, he picked up a little movie called Scarface, which was originally being developed by, you guessed it, Sidney Lumet. Before we transition to Kevin Montez in today's list, it's time to hear from today's sponsor, Career Transitions Corporation, a company that you might need without even knowing it. Now look, 
We've seen companies like Dunder Mifflin go through downsizing on TV, but did you know that that's a real thing? That's right, listeners. Corporate downsizing isn't just movie magic. And if your company has redundancies and you need to trim the proverbial fat, you need to call Career Transitions Corporation. Look, CEOs, we all know you've blown your way to the top and you don't want to deal with the stress of having to tell someone that they're being let go from the balcony of your ivory tower. So let CTC do it for you. They'll fire your peons with the grace and delicacy that they deserve. And all you have to do is dial their phone number. Tell them the Force 5 podcast sent you and for every nine people they fire, the 10th is free. Career Transitions Corporation, because people's dreams should no longer be up in the air. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by music critic Kevin Montez. How are you, Kevin? I'm good. How are you? I am good. You've got a, a music blog called The Weekly Coup. Tell us about your uh, tell us about your music criticism. Well, honestly, music has always been really part of my life. It's just that I've never really known which way I wanted to take it. I used to do a lot of work, you know, graphic designing in high school, and that sort of piqued my interest, as well as film a lot. Film has always been part of me, but it really just all grew from music. I've been writing on and off for past decade. Went through a two-year hiatus where, you know, I just had a little, like, mental break. I couldn't really write. It was, like, one of those elongated writer's block, but now I'm just back in full locomotion. Uh, what are some of your favorite albums that have come out this year? Ooh, I like the John Batiste album that came out, um, Freedom, which is the, he's the band leader for Stephen Colbert, Late Night. It was great okay. jazz music. Um, this little indie band, well, not really little, everybody knows it's one of the major indie bands. The Antlers dropped a great album earlier this year from Green to Gold. Um, see, um, there's been a lot of great movie, uh, music I've loved. I love this, um, I really into like traditional pop and folk. Uh, this Spanish artist I really like, Natalia La Porcada, dropped one of my favorite albums this year, as well as uh, UK rapper Little Sims. I listen to pretty much almost everything, except for country. I'm very hit or miss with it. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way, and I've noticed on your music blog that there there are a ton of different genres that you cover, and I think we talked about the Boldy James album for a second, which I uh, which I really liked. I really like Boldy James' album. Yeah, that was really good. He has just a consistent streak. I mean, with uh, his last project with the Alchemist too. Um, all I remember from the title is the word T. <laughs> <'Cause> he's dropped some <laughs> yeah, really great projects uh, that I uh, yeah. <laughs> The Price of Tea in China or something like that, right? Yep, yep, there you go. That's the one. That was a solid one. In terms of movies, what are some of those favorite movies that you like? Oh, uh, well, one of my favorites is by um, this uh, Spanish director who's only really made one film. It's uh, called The Spirit of the Beehive. So it's this uh, 1970 film about this... Uh, it, it takes place in... Um, right at the midst of Franconian Spain and this village has this access to a movie theater but the movie is brought in from bars away and it's only in circulation for a few weeks and they show it to the little kids so what they show is Frankenstein and she becomes enamored with the whole story between the little girl and Frankenstein and sort of that kind of kinship they deliver and at one point when she discovers this sort of like abandoned 
sort like brick cabin and there's a wounded soldier in there who is against Franco. And in a way she starts to mirror the whole sense of Frankenstein being sort of like a guiding presence to her friendship with the stranger. It's a very sad and traumatic film by Victor Reese. Um, I love that. I also love the classic, you know, Singing in the Rain. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big yeah. love musicals, man. I, the, a few weeks ago, I was rewatching My Fair Lady. Can't get enough of it. That's like a really interesting span of movies. What was what was the name of the, the first one that you mentioned with bees? Oh, The Spirit of the Beehive. Spirit of the Beehive. I need to look that up. I've never heard of that movie. And uh, it's not often that somebody comes with a movie that I've never heard of. So I got to look that up. I definitely recommend it. It's 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 warming. It's it's beautiful. It's rustic. It's just remarkable. All right, I'll, I'll check that out. So, what inspired your list choice today? We're doing top five comedies of the last ten years. It was a really really fun list to research yeah. and think about. What inspired this? Uh, comedy is actually my uh, favorite genre. <laughs> okay, it's what I pretty much watched the most. Um, I'm a very very picky with my comedy. I'll say that much. Um like even going into this list i had to think about it thoroughly like am i going to be looking at this to give people the most laughs they want because at the end of the day like with genre being so broken as it is we get to have just picked five amazing comedy dramas where they're in a sense more drama than comedy but they're still labeled as that because there is a you know a consistent amount of humor but at the same time comedy has to have a consistency with everybody has to have an appropriate runtime. And that's what I kept looking at this, especially also at the different types of comedies there are. I've seen a lot. <laughs> Even going through Letterboxd, <laughs> I was just like, I was like, huh, I wonder how many movies from the 2010s of comedy I haven't seen. And I probably went through like five. <laughs> like oh, I man. Seen. And there's these obscure comedies that I don't even know about. Okay. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to your take on comedies. Comedy for me is not the genre that I gravitate to. I think people who listen to the show know I'm kind of action slash horror first. And, you know, thriller and crime comes after that, sci-fi after that, and comedies maybe after that. My wife's a big fan of comedies, so I do watch a lot of those with her. But very rarely do I find myself going towards comedies. But as I started thinking about my list and looking at my list, there are a good... 10 comedies that I think could fall into my list. And it was very hard to get it down to five. I feel you. I I kept interchanging movies. Sometimes I even had to watch them twice just to make sure that I'm solidified. There's only one, like sometimes I'll come into these lists and it's like, well, like for top five alien movies, obviously alien aliens, ET would be in my top five, but I want to talk about certain movies that wouldn't necessarily make a list like that. Cause I feel like everybody had seen those. But for this, I really yeah. went in with, like, these have to be the funniest comedies. These are legitimately the five funniest comedies. And there's only one that I left off my list that could have been in the top five. And the only reason I left it off is because I just talked about it on last or two two weeks ago. And I didn't want to, like, rehash that. But every other one oh, on my list deserves to be on my top five. So I'm, I'm excited to get into this. How many do you think we'll cross over on? I want to say maybe two. It's also tough because I don't know your the style of comedy that you like. So yeah, I'll I'll go with you on I'll take the uh I'll take the under. I'll say one. I'll say one. All right. 
All right. All right, uh, Kevin, you ready to get to this list? Definitely. You know what's going to happen? Top five comedies of the last 10 years. You want to kick things off or you want me to kick things off? So my number five is sort of one of the more quintessential comedies to really ignite 2010. And that was Jackass 3D. When Time Magazine called 3D the future of movies. Three, two, one. We doubt this is what they had in mind. You're taking it to a whole other level. Yeah. Look pretty happy about it. I did have a couple last night, so uh, this ain't going to feel too good. I, I was already a big fan of Jackass 2. I'm a big fan of Jackass. At the end of the day, going into Jackass 3, I'm like, it's the same movie, new gimmick. Let's see how the gimmick really transcribes, because at the end of the day, 3D was just being rehashed just to sell more money, and they still do it today. I mean, my Bloody mm -hmm. Valentine remake did not need to be in 3D, and all those 3D shots were gratuitous. Now... With Jackass 3D, a lot of the 3D shots are very calculated, they're funny, they work. A lot of the stunts are consistent. Some may work for others, and some may not, because at the end of the day, those depend on your stomach level. Some are very more grotesque, <laughs> like the moment where uh, Steve-O had the huge space helmet, and the person farted through the tube, and he just puked everywhere. I looked away. It was funny, just thinking about the idea... But as soon as it happened, I had to look away because, you know, I tend to be one with a squeamish stomach. So that did not mm -hmm. translate well for me. And it's probably one of the only films where even renting it after the fact, and this might sound like a dated sentence, but Blockbuster, when they used mm -hmm. to rent 3D movies, they still had those, they still sold you for $1, those paper, red and blue glasses. So nice. they were still having those at the beginning of 2011. So just renting it and being able to sort of rewatch it in 3D was pretty fun too. And it's just a movie that still holds up to this day, even without having the 3D aspect on your TV, just the comedy itself. And it starts off with a big bang with something so simple and yet so dumb with the big hand. <laughs> and it's just, and you just keep going. These ones always kind of like uh, blend together for me. And I haven't, I probably have only seen the Jackass movies when they were in theaters, but uh, I, I probably need to rewatch the Jackass movies just because they're outlandish. And I, I enjoy the prank style skits more than like just pain or uh, suffering, especially how like Steve-O takes so much bodily harm as an older dude now myself. God, I, I feel like Johnny Knoxville is going to kill himself with one of these stunts someday. And, 
It's, well, you know, it's only funny when people are not hurt, seriously. Yeah, well, Steve said in the trailer, man, one, after you're 50 and you start getting concussions, that's when you should be worried. So I think 50 is going to be the magic number for Knoxville. As much as I want to see more jackass, I hope that at some point for him and his kids' sake, he, he hangs up he yeah. hangs up the jackass helmet. All right, that was Jackass 3D, you said from 2011? Uh, 2010, end of 2010, October. All right, which way do I want to go with my number five? Because mine aren't in really in any kind of order. I think any of these could be at number one. So we'll go with 2018's Game Night. Max is very competitive, as am I. It's one of the reasons I fell in love with him. Oh, it's easy. He was an Incredible Hulk. Eric Bana. Other one. Mark Ruffalo. Other one. Lou Ferrigno. Primal Fear. Richard Gere never played the Incredible Hulk. Time. Jesus Christ. Ed Norton. Oh, oh Primal Fear. Guys, what do you say we do this at my house next week? This will be a game night to remember. Oh, boy. Mm. Tonight, we're taking game night up a notch. We don't need a board and we do not need pieces. We won't need any extra rudeness either. Someone in this room is going to be taken. Oh, it's a murder mystery party. Fun. Whoever finds the victim wins the grand prize. The keys to the stingray. Just the keys? No, Ryan, the whole car. Oh, yes! I also have this on my list. Oh, cool. Then, yeah, we can. I'll, I'll go over mine and then you can chime right in and then uh, we'll just call it your number four. Uh, so this one's directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. Stars Jason Bateman, Rachel McAdams, Kyle Chandler, and Jesse Plemons in a standout role. Bateman plays Max and Rachel McAdams plays Annie. They're a very, very competitive couple. They met at a bar where they were doing trivia night and games have been like their thing. And every week they go to, they they get together with friends. They have a game night. And one time they go to their to uh, Max's brother's house. His name is Brooks, and he says, we're not going to have any game boards today. It's going to be an interactive game, and he has these FBI agents come in, and they have these dossiers that have clues, so it's like a real-life murder mystery. But as they're introducing this game, two kidnappers break in and abduct Brooks. So now it's like, is this part of the game? We don't know. They have to try and figure out what's real, what's not, and solve the mystery of the missing brother. Now, I will say this about Game Night. This film is way better in every single aspect than comedies need to be. Like the camera work in Game Night is stunning. And it's got these even um, like transitional shots coming into the neighborhood are are almost like they're part of a game board. And it's got this craft that you don't normally see in these mid-budget studio comedies. It's also very, very funny, and the jokes are layered, which is really fun. There's callbacks throughout the entire movie. And I think you're probably going to agree with me, Kevin, that the, the real highlight of this film is Jesse Plemons' character, Gary, who's this creepy neighbor who desperately wants to be invited to a game night. And every time he is on screen, he just absolutely steals the show. Uh, there's a ton of film references. Like, there's a great part where Rachel McAdams does a scene from Pulp Fiction. Uh, there's a ton of board game references that are really, really fun. And unlike a lot of most studio comedies, again, it, it never stoops to a childish level. Where Like, there's, it's not just built on dick and fart jokes or overdone tropes like the high on drugs scene. It, it doesn't go there. And I really, really appreciated that. 
What are your thoughts on Game Night? The big thing that gravitated me the first time I watched it was just the big relatability behind it. Like, even in the whole situational humor in which everything happens, they still feel like normal people. Like the scene in the trailer where Jason Bateman gets shot with a gun. It, while you're watching <laughs> this movie, this is just a normal guy. And that's a normal reaction. So it really brings you down to earth, despite so many twists and turns that it takes you in just a consistent form of comedy. Like, it's just everybody has their own unique sense of direction. Like Billy Magnuson and Sharon Hogan with their little winter banter where it's just, it's like a subvert of the will they, won't they. But it's obviously like she doesn't give a crap. <laughs> and then you have the whole Lamorne Morris and his wife with the whole, you know, who does she get with? And, and yeah. at the end of the day, none of the jokes ever really feel tried. And all yeah. the callbacks also are just so great, especially just this one moment. And I'm not going to really spoil much, but the scene with Danny Houston, that scene always gets me. I just, <laughs> I love it. It's there's so much, there's so much I can speak about this, man. It's just, it, it's, it's a very genuine movie. It, it's probably one of the better ensembles too, in my opinion, of the past 10 years. Jeffrey Wright even steals the scene he's in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, Michael C. Hall as well. He was so brilliant. It's everything about the movie is just in subsequent order, like it's so great. There's never a moment where I'm looking back and I'm like, nothing needed to be trimmed. Like this is just a perfect movie. Yeah, I agree. I can't wait to see what these guys come up with in the the comedy genre again. I mean. Mark Perez, the writer, he's got the Carmen Sandiego movie coming out, and that's the the first thing he's done since Game Night. So I'm wondering how that's going to work out. I hope that it's good. Well, I'm surprised it still has some relevancy. The last time I heard that game, I was in fifth grade. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to see what he does with it. But who knows? You can do a lot with uh, with an old property, <laughs> which an old property may come up on my list later in terms of my honorable mentions. We'll see. All right, so um, Game Night was my number five, and we'll say it was your number four. So we're going to roll right into my number four then. And I will go with another Jason Bateman film. This was Jason Bateman's directorial debut from 2013. The movie's called Bad Words. The spelling bee is meant for kids. Rule number 24, the speller must not have passed beyond the eighth grade on or before February 1st. You can see there, I have not passed the eighth grade. Not ever. What's her name? Spin it around. What was your winning word? It was autofellatio. I've never heard of that word. If you don't point that curry hole that way and sit your fucking ass down in that seat, I'm going to tell the captain that your bag's ticking. Welcome, everyone, to the National Spelling Bee. Hey, God. Hey, Slumdog. What are you doing up on the stage, weirdo? Your chair called me for help. It's like, help me. It's so heavy. It stars Jason Bateman as well. And uh, Rohan Chand plays his little 10-year-old sidekick. It's also got Catherine Hahn, Allison Janney, and Philip Baker Hall. Jason Bateman plays uh, 40-year-old Guy Trilby, who is a school dropout. He dropped out of middle school, and he finds a loophole in the regulations of the largest spelling bee in the United States and joins in to participate to win the Golden Quill. And his aim is, is to take revenge for something done to him in the past. This film is offensive, and it is in horrible taste. 
And I think that's why I love it. I'm a big fan of this kind of comedy when it's done right. Like the the main character, Guy Trilby, is not a character that you're supposed to like and you're not supposed to empathize with him very much. It's it's very much like a character straight out of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It feels like he'd fit yep. right in with that show. Um, he <laughs> like just he doesn't give a shit. Yeah, he's he's smart as a whip and he is so quick with his words and he's hurling these insults even better than he spells. But I think the real magic of bad words is the little 10-year-old Rohan Chan who has this perfect chemistry with Jason Bateman. His character's name is uh, Chaitanya and they start building this friendship. I mean, it's a story that you've seen a million times. Like it's really paint by numbers and you're going to know where the climax is going, but it's so fun that you just won't care. And I think that the film is at its funniest when the parents of the children get mad at him for participating in these tournaments. And as a parent, like I understand their frustration. Like you have these kids that are nine and 10 years old and they've probably studied and, and tried to, get into these spelling bees for, you know, however long. And then you have this 40-year-old man that's sitting there kicking their asses. And you understand it, but God, it's funny when he just goes in on them. It is so good. I am the mother of one of the competitors competing here. Okay. What you're doing is an insult to every honest child that's worked so hard to be here, including my son. I've worked very, very hard to get here too, madam, and I'm well within the rules. <laughs> You're an asshole. That's all. That's a child. Yes. And I'm sure he's heard even worse from you. I don't speak like that in front of him. Oh. Oh, is that right? Yes, that's right. So why don't you take your potty mouth, oh. go locate your preteen cocksucker son, and stuff him back up that old blown-out sweat sock of a vagina and scoot off to whatever shit-kicking town you came from. Can you do that for me? Now, Jason Bateman's a great director. He's also doing Ozark on Netflix. He can do comedy. He can do drama. He's just one of my favorite actors. And he's in the funniest TV show of all time, which is Arrested Development. So anything Bateman I'm in for. And he is, I think he's fantastic in bad words. Well, I love Bateman, man. Always been a fan since Arrested Development. All right. So number three for you. All right. So my number three is this nice little French film from 2011 called The Untouchables. And for some other people who may not have known, it will be known to you as The Upside with Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston as the remake. Well, I personally am choosing the French version because even though the remake is fine, there's something warming about the original that makes it so much more better. And I know it's just a tried sort of statement saying the original is always better. And in most cases, I've seen where the remake is slightly better. But in this case, with the Untouchables, it has more to do with the chemistry and the relatability. With Omar Sy, he plays this sort of like down on his luck, like worker trying to get unemployment benefits. But in order to do so, he has to get sign off from certain employers. And at the end, and in doing so, he gets roped into becoming a caretaker for this very rich and famous art dealer. And you know, this man can only move his head and his mouth. He can't move his hands. He can't move his legs. And he's going to start building this camaraderie based around bets and just the jokes, the genuine characters. It's just, it's a really, really well done comedy. Now, if you really want to look at this critically, it is a simple plot. The characterizations 
really don't get to a point where they're multi-layered, but they're layered to the point where you actually get a feeling for these characters. You feel all their sentiments. So you're there just like enthralled by just the way they act, the naturalistic nature, almost Omar Sy's jokingly funny and consistent sexual advances on the person who is currently writing his letters like his estate manager and it's just this consistent onslaught of comedy and even at the end of the day when it wants to get you at the heartstrings it gets you at the heartstrings it's a very very well done movie and i really really found it to be one of the major highlights of the decade you're having it on your top five list is probably going to push me right into watching it. it it's not even a long film it's a very simple watch because i know some people do have that kind of struggle where it's like it's easier to find 90 minutes than it is to find two hours in a day of life. This movie clocks in at a good like hour 45. You sit there, no time is ever wasted. You're always just consistently laughing and enjoying yourself. And it's really at its core one of the more like funny and more genuine comedies that I've personally loved this past 10 years. I'll have to check it out. I know it's won all kinds of awards, so I know that uh, that. A lot of people have it really high on their list. That's the Intouchables from 2011. Yep, from France. All right, my number three. We're going to go to 2013. Just one of my my favorite casts. My Actually, my, one of the more inspired casting choices, I think, on my list. This is written and directed by Shane Black. The movie's called The Nice Guys. This is a high-profile case. You've seen this girl? Name's Amelia. Who's in it for me? We can do this the easy way. No! We're currently doing it the easy way. Dad, there's like whores here and stuff. Sweetheart, how many times have I told you? Don't say and stuff. Just say, Dad, there are whores here. Where are you going? I think this is going to work better if we split up. Wow, that's really insensitive. Yeah. Why? I had to question the mermaids. What were you doing while I was working? Why do you think everyone involved in this case is dying? This one stars Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. And uh, Andrew Rice plays Ryan Gosling's daughter. It's about 1970s Los Angeles, and both Gosling and Crowe play Private Eyes. They are matched up, they, like they come together to investigate a missing girl and at the same time a mysterious death of a porn star. To me, this film is the definition of wit in which every movement that any character does is giving us something to laugh at or setting up something to laugh at. And although there's a lot of physical comedy, like there's a scene where Gosling's pointing a gun at Russell Crowe's character from a bathroom stall that is just hilarious and needs to be seen. Most of the comedy just comes from the dialogue. And that, I think, is where Shane Black is kind of a master. If you Now, I will say this. You said you're not a huge Shane Black fan. If you didn't like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, you might not like The Nice Guys, but Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is one of my top five movies of all time. When I said wit, like there are a lot of movies now that will throw in witty jokes here and there because they think that's what keeps the audience on their toes. And in a lot of movies, and I'm thinking of like Marvel movies, for example, Guardians of the Galaxy or 
Avengers, right? There's like a very serious scene and then somebody throws in a witty joke because it's like, we can't have the audience just like feeling sad for a minute or whatever it is. But this movie doesn't do that. This movie is all about smart dialogue and it never feels forced. One of the most surprising things about the nice guys, I think, is Ryan Gosling, who I'd always known as either a really suave, really cool guy, like in um, Crazy Stupid Love, that that type of character, or the mysterious character like from Only God Forgives or Drive. But wow, he is so funny here as Holland March. In one of the very first scenes, he gets his arm broken and it is among the funniest scenes that, that I've ever seen. And, and it's all because of Gosling. And then Russell Crowe is perfectly paired as the straight man to the goofball. Th- there's another interesting quality about the nice guys, is, and that's that it sub- subverts some of like the normal Hollywood tropes that you typically see in buddy cop films. And I'll give you one example. In any buddy cop film in Act 3, you're going to have this moment of reflection between the two characters, and there's always like a story or a, a parable that goes along with this. And Nice Guys is no different. Russell Crowe tells this long story. And the difference is when he's done with this story, Gosling is like, so you're just trying to tell me that there's different perspectives? Like, just fucking say that. Like, you don't need to tell me this whole stupid story. And it's just that kind of like subversion of the buddy cop genre that is done so nicely. The Nice Guys from 2013 is my second favorite Shane Black film after Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I love it so much, and I hope you watch it and let me know what you think. Um, it's definitely on my list to watch. I just, I'm one of the slowest watchers you'll probably ever meet. I'll say this. <laughs> I started watching Hacks after it stopped airing, and it still took me two months to finish. <laughs> nice, nice. So, yeah. So far, we've matched up on one choice. We've got two left. What's your number two? All right, so my number two is... 2019's The Beach Bum, starring Matthew McConaughey. It all stops now. The foolishness. You gotta publish your novel. And if you mess this up, it's jail time. Uh, Wish me luck. I'm off to write the next great American novel. I may have a gangbang when I get back. I will invite your mother. Thank you, Mr. Mundog. I'm trying to uncover my connection with the world. Just follow me, my friend. Let's go, man. Is he a good pilot? Mom, man, you got glaucoma in both his eyes. It's perfect. <laughs> I die on this hill where I personally think Spring Breakers is the one true masterpiece of the decade. Comments aside, with the Beach Bum, I think it's on par, but not as good, even those different films. The Beach Bum really is one of the more quintessential stoner comedies that I've come to love. A lot of the stoner comedies we've had recently have been way more centered on absurdism and way beyond the factual nature of like what it is. Pineapples Express, it becomes a stoner action movie, which the chances of that ever happening, it's like there's no real relatability. <laughs> this is the end. Obviously, there's no real relatability. Neighbors as well. Like there's not really a consistent tone with it now even though you know the relatability the the relatability of the beach bum still stands very thin because Matthew McConaughey comes from a wife with money 
the whole essence of it is a true comedy about a man going through this own experience after an unfortunate tragedy in order to finish his book and claim the estate. And through it, he, you know, goes through so many different interesting journeys with Zac Efron's character who plays this reborn Christian after being into so many drugs and alcohol and they just go on this weird ass excursion overnight and it's so hilarious and then Martin Lawrence who plays a friend of his who owns this who's a captain of like a really bad touristy boat in the uh, Everglades kind of area of Miami and then we have and this is like so many great characters like Snoop Dogg plays his best friend and Jimmy Buffett and at the end of the day all the comedy just feels so natural it's one of those stoner comedies too where it's just like you're laughing but it's also in a way inspirational it isn't hmm. a film that's like oh i'm taking you this shit could actually happen to somebody because like at the end of the day the movie's taking off of a lot of things to do with florida especially you know we've seen those headlines over the past decade it's been a little crazy they had <laughs> zombies <laughs> so yeah bath salts and shit go... exactly so to go through this sort of still absurdist journey because it's just going through the underbelly of Miami. The comedy stays true to the dark and holistic nature of it. Like, he, it's just so many great moments in the movie. Matthew McConaughey was made for this role. The Harmony Corrin knows a way to write comedy that really fits with the editing. It's very, it's written with the type of energy that comes from a film that has wit. But the wit isn't really as much there as it is the comedy is more physical and situational. Because you're just really like looking at a genius stoner poet and the situations are just funny. The conversations can get funny because it's just like, it's just a bunch of ridiculous people. But I just remember so much of this movie being in, that left me in awe. Like, when you look at the color correction and just the color use with the of the movie, like even with the neon lights, it's a little more darker, grittier. It really represents a different side of the of Miami, which and Palms, which this movie tries to represent, as opposed to Spring Breakers, which is a satire on the lavish nature of you know spoiled white girls in Florida. But um, it it really it's true to his nature it never tries to be anything more never tries to be anything less it, it, it's just like one of the real comedies that has an identity too and it's just it's just so much that has you wanting to come back for more because you feel like you've missed a lot along the way especially from the beginning because the movie just starts out on a great and ridiculous note and at the end of the day it still has this harmony coronisms so you do, you know, <laughs> mind you going into this, you're going to see some scenes where you'll probably get like a weird ass two and a half minute sex scene with Matthew McConaughey. Like there's this one where he's having sex with this woman in the back of the kitchen while the chef's there grilling and he has the other spatula just spanking her ass. And you get that for two and a half minutes while he's trying to have a conversation with his wife. And it's just a quick little funny banter. And that's sort of what you're going to get with Harmony Corrin sometimes. He's not you know, once also be subtle visually. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I haven't seen The Beach Bum. I really like Matthew McConaughey and the cast. I mean, I've seen the cast list for this. 
And it is very interesting. Like all those people that you mentioned are generally people that I like, but Harmony Corinne is a, is a director that I just don't normally like, like his stuff. So I'm, I'm like very on the fence of watching Beach Bum. I'll tell you this. When I say Harmony Coronisms, that sex scene that I'm telling you about, that's like really the worst thing that happens in the movie. Like if you've seen, if you ever seen Gummo, if you've ever seen Kids, if you've ever seen <laughs> yes. any of those movies, it's not that. Kids is mean spirited. The movie's not mean spirited. This is really a actual like genuine film. Like there's no bad juju in this film. Like, like sure, if you don't like seeing those like abrupt and like semi-comical sex scenes that may not work for people, like okay. But other than that, like it's not grotesque. I mean, the most grotesque thing that happens is with Martin Lawrence, but that's actually just funny because it's it's more like in a sense of what you you would usually see in an action movie. It's like the best way to mirror it is the effects of that moment in Cliffhanger where he's fighting where Stephen is fighting the one henchman and then grabs him by the nuts and then by the chest and <laughs> pins him up against the is it stalactite that hangs from the or is it stalag- stalactite stalag yeah stalactite because it's got to hang yeah, tight so when right? he sta- and then he pushes him against the stalactite so it's like that kind of grotesque kind of like gorish kind of thing you'll probably got get it. and it's not even that bad it's 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 really in many ways it's more subdued film okay so that's uh that's beach bum maybe i will have to give this one a shot like i said i like the cast and yeah the corinisms that i'm not a fan of are the more mean-spirited one like you said kids is very mean-spirited and i only got through like 20 minutes of gummo before i had to walk out of the room on that one so it sounds like beach bum is not that kind of movie (laughs) it isn't cool uh wow so we have vastly different lists so far and i love that we're gonna go into my number two which is the most recent movie on my list and could be overall probably the most funny on my list. And that's 2019's Book Smart. We have to go to a party tonight. What? Nobody knows that we are fun. We didn't party because we wanted to focus on school and get into good colleges. And it worked. But the irresponsible people who partied also got into those colleges. I'm incredible at hand jobs, but I also got a 1560 on the SATs. We haven't done anything. We haven't broken any rules. Name one person whose life was so much better because they broke a couple of rules. Picasso. He broke art rules. Rosa Parks. Name another one. Susan B. Anthony. God damn it. Picture this. I'm a bag of... Put me to your lips. Hand sanitizer. Check. Chapstick. Check. Mace. Listen, it is very important that you keep the safe... I said there's like one of there's like five movies I haven't seen. Oh, this Funny is enough, one you haven't this seen. Is one of them, yes. I've just been so lazy. <laughs> oh, here we go. Here's my here's my pitch to you. This one is directed by Olivia Wilde. I believe it was her directorial debut. It stars Kat, Caitlin Dever, Beanie Feldstein, Jessica Williams, and Jason Sudeikis, and a ton of other people. Uh, it's about these two girls, and on the eve of their high school graduation. These academic superstars and best friends realize that they should have worked less and played more and determined not to fall short of their peers in terms of how much fun they've had throughout the four years. These girls try to cram all of those years of fun into one night by going to a couple of different parties. 
Now, the story sounds like one that you've probably heard a million times before. There are obvious uh, comparisons to Superbad, movies like American Pie, but this film is way smarter, way better than those, and I think that over time it will hold up way better as well. I think that this film works for two reasons. Number one, it subverts your expectations because it does not fall into those typical teen stereotypes. And number two, the two leads have just absolutely fantastic chemistry. So to touch on the first reason, subverting expectations. In most teen movies, you're going to have these nerds and they are going to be like the weak people and they look up to the jocks and they look up to the cool kids and they wish they could be like those people. But in real life, experiences tell you that that's not how the world works. And these these girls are nerds, like they're self-proclaimed nerds, but they are very powerful women. They are very smart and they look down upon those other people. They look down upon them and don't even value their experiences. When we see those other typical teen stereotypes in the movie, like the jocks and the stoners and the rich kids, they're not idiots and they're not complete dickheads. They are nuanced and there's more than meets the eye to every single person on screen. And I think that that is so smart. To the second point, the, the main characters, Amy and Molly, they feel like people who have been friends for years and they have this amazing chemistry and every scene between them works and the dialogue is so smart and so funny. The film is so well written. And I remember that we didn't watch this in theaters. We watched this when it came out on Blu-ray. And there were times when we were watching it, my wife and I, that I had to pause and then rewind just to hear lines that I was laughing over because it was so damn funny. I mentioned Superbad. Obviously, there are going to be con comparisons because it's a very similar type of story. And Beanie Feldstein is uh, Jonah Hill's sister. So you're going to have those comparisons. But I rewatched Superbad maybe like a year ago. And now as like a 40-year-old dude, Superbad to me doesn't hold up. It is very juvenile and there are some funny scenes, but it's a lot of stuff that as an older person, you're going to roll your eyes at. And I don't feel that way with Booksmart. And that's why I think it's such a great comedy. I think it's going to stand the test of time. And I really hope you watch it soon. You know what's crazy? I, I've been meaning to watch it for many reasons. It, every trailer is look funny. I love Jason Sudeikis. I, I'm a big Caitlin Dever fan. Hands down. I think she's so great. So underrated. Definitely needs to do more stuff. But it's it's funny you bring this up because there was a film that sort of started but didn't really end up making my list. And sort of in a similar vein too because you bring this up uh, with Booksmart was Easy A from 2010. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. which I personally really, really liked. I thought it was hilarious. And it was just a smart, you know, female-led comedy in high school. And, like, you know, seeing the trailer for Booksmart, that was also one of the immediate, like, bare comparisons that hit my mind. I'm like, oh, another smart high school teen comedy led by women. Except, you know, instead of being the PG-13 nature of Easy A and still being, you know, sex positive, it's rated R just to allow for dialogue to be more fluid. Because, you know, easy yep. A, you barely hear fuck. Like, it's a PG-13 movie. So, it's it's been on my Hulu queue for the longest. I, I definitely need to start, I need, definitely need to watch it soon. <laughs>
Yeah, check it out. I think with what you've talked about in terms of the comedies you like, you're really going to identify with this one. The characters are really smart. It's very well written. I think you'll like it a lot. All right, Kevin, on to your number one, your grand finale of top five comedies of the last 10 years. What do you got? Now, I wonder if this one might be one we share. Pop star, never stop stopping. Oh, that's on my honorable mentions. It's on my honorable Uh, mentions. For some people, going back and rewatching Anchorman to this day, it could be boring because you've seen it too many times or, you know, you still love it. And that's going to be the same thing with Popstar. Even at the end of the day, even if you get tired of it, you still recognize the genius behind it. It wasn't really seen when it came out. It actually bombed horrifically. And I was surprised I went uh, opening Friday. And I was probably one of maybe four people in the theater. And, you know, I'm not one to ever get embarrassed. But at the first time, I was the only one laughing my heart, like my ass off throughout the whole movie. Because as someone who subverts themselves into pop culture, pop music, especially hip-hop as well, I sort of understood every angle this film was trying to get at. And it always hits the nail on the coffin with such perfect precision. It really fits into sort of the niche, sort of, or rather now, not even as niche, but culture of music journalism, especially focusing on Pitchfork, which I thought was one of the most hilarious things because Pitchfork, though back in like 10 years ago, was still a small-ish but semi-large publication. It didn't really have that same cultural impact that it did when Popstar came out because then most people really look at Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, a lot of the stuff that it gets at. And even with the more absurdist parts of it, it's just so dumb and it's so unnecessary and yet you still laugh. Like the moment where he gets mad and he tells the camera to shut off and all you hear is the dialogue of him and his, I think his butler or whatever, just fighting that killer bee with the flamethrower. And all you hear is the bee and Tim screaming and no video. And at the end, he's like, oh, I hope you guys got that. And that had nothing to do with the scene. He just got mad. And then just something so absurd happened that it just felt so out of place. And yet you just couldn't stop laughing. And at the end of the day, it's one of those things where even if it doesn't make sense and you're still laughing, you're you still remember it. It's just so many movies, it, the, the fact that they were able to get these artists to deliver such, you know, true interviews, like I really felt Nas when he said this was like the reunion that nobody ever expected to happen, like something like momentous, as momentous as we're getting this year with the Fugees reuniting for the 25th anniversary of the score, which I'm excited about. Side note, yeah, but um, it it really holds true, especially with the awards and how it goes. I just love that in joke where, especially when they're performing at an awards show, or when they're showing the concert footage, and they're just using basic stock footage of concerts that they just recorded throughout, <laughs> like the Grammys and everything, and they just like randomly edit it in there, like when they're not looking at just like the front row and. Connor singing. The songs also have consistency. It, the part with Ringo Starr is just phenomenal. I just think everybody comes in with enough flair to really just keep this movie on a steady, constant 
rotation that you're just there in awe for all 90-so minutes. It, it's, in my opinion, the spinal tap of this generation, especially with the way the Lonely Island has solidified themselves also as parody hip-hop artists in their own right. Um, a lot of the in-jokes are also very effective. Um, also, funny anecdote, back in my heyday, I used to work for the Tribeca Film Festival. And uh, in the midst of taking a uh, whiz, the uh, the guy, the actor who plays Kid Contact, Yorma Tacone, walks in. Now, these theater bathrooms are very small in New York City. So when I tell you he was like maybe two inches away from me, that's pretty legit. Like it was like that cramped. Now, in the moment, I was like, oh, that's cool. Like I'm peeing next to him. I'm not going to talk to him because we all know having a conversation while both while you're both peeing next to each other in a stall is, you know, stereotypically giving you a scene as awkward, and I personally don't like to do it. Yeah, and it's an unwritten bathroom me, rule. Like, exactly, and then he starts talking to me, and I'm like, uh, 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 I mean, I know the sitch, but it's like, I don't want to leave this guy hanging. <laughs> so we just have a little quick banter, and then, you know, it was, it was pretty fun. And, you know, this was way before Popstar, but, you know, it, that little funny and it always sticks to me every time i watch any of their work um but pop star is really just one of those movies where even the absurdism the music everything works i just even love how the musicians even play into the absurdism like with the scene with pink and equal rights which we all know about where you start singing about how everybody should have equal rights way after the fact that it was legalized in the united states so you know it's just a lot of quick jazz it's just like oh it's referential to the times it still holds up because it, it's really focused on a lot of like big moments especially focused in on being a satire of justin bieber amongst other pop stars and i really 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 loved it this is one that was like so close to making my list it's number one on my honorable mentions and for the same reasons that you talked about tons of great cameos the music is really catchy and music that you can listen to in the car while you're driving around and not feel embarrassed because it's like it's good melodies, even if the lyrics are ridiculous. And uh, there is a scene where, you know, a lot of people, a lot of stars will get in their limo surrounded by fans and women are putting breasts on the on the windows and stuff. And it's no different with Connor for real. But this dude puts his dick on the window and it's one of the funniest. It's like one of the hardest, one of the scenes I've laughed the hardest at in my life. Another, the only other scene that made me laugh as hard probably was the, um, the reveal scene where they pulled that joke on him when he was trying to change outfits. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. spoil too much, but yeah, that <laughs> killed me. But, you know, you're right. The movie has so many great cameos. The writing is so smart and tight. Judd Apatow really knows how to find these intricate people and really let them shine in their own right. I don't think people gave Pot but or not Hot Buzz, Hot Rod enough credit at the time. And it was actually really banned because nobody really got that simple, stupid, absurdist humor that in a way was sort of slightly, if not really, modeled by norm because norm just came in with a such a ridiculous and crazy delivery every time you never know what he was going to say and even then he sounds so genuine 
when he says it, it's like he's never mean spirited. Man. It's it's one of those things that you really catch on, like how he really influences a lot of comedy to this day, Norm MacDonald. And especially with the way The Lonely Island has also been delivering their comedy where it's like you there's it's always in a different direction, but it's always consistent. And it's always interrupted. And I like that. Yeah, the thing I like about the Lonely Island comedy too, and this is true with Hot Rod as well, is that it's grounded in reality until it's not. Like it will just go into these weird bonkers places that like you wouldn't expect it to go into. And the tone is just like totally crazy and off the wall in so much that like if you tried to pitch a screenplay and sell a screenplay with that tone, it would never sell. But these guys don't have to worry about that. And yeah, they get away with it. And it's good. It's so funny. So good. I if you haven't seen it, because I know even to this day, even what is cold status still hasn't been seen by many. I highly recommend you watch it. So good. All right. Well, we did not match up on my number one. So we've got nine different comedies here for people to watch. My number one is definitely the most acclaimed comedy on my list. This one was nominated for two Oscars. It's 2011's Bridesmaids, directed by Paul Feig. Will you be my maid of honor? Of course I will. Thank you so much for bringing us here. It's my bridesmaid, the most beautiful. You're so pretty. You're so cute. <laughs> Fabulous. Blue and blue. It's like looking in a mirror. Kind of. Bunch of bitches. The bride could ask for. I can't wait to be married and to have kids. The other night, my youngest said he wants to order pizza. I said, no, we're not ordering pizza. He goes, mom, why don't you go and fuck yourself? He's nine. I wanted to go over some ideas for the bachelorette party. Las Vegas. Strip club. Disney World. Female fight club. We grease up, beat the shit out of her. Ah! Surprise! The dress is so pretty, it makes my stomach hurt. We got food poisoning from your restaurant, no? Maybe everyone's pregnant. Congratulations. This one is just, to me, one of the funniest comedies of all time. It was written by Kristen Wiig and her best friend, Annie Mamulo. Stars Kristen Wiig, Maya Rudolph, Rose Byrne, Ellie Kemper, Wendy McClendon-Covey, and Melissa McCarthy in a very subdued, really funny role. The basic story of Bridesmaids is that Annie's life is falling apart. Annie is Kristen Wiig. And her best friend Lillian, played by Maya Rudolph, just got engaged. And although her life is in turmoil, Lillian has asked Annie to be her bride or her uh, maid of honor, to which she accepts, of course, But Lillian's new friend Helen, played by Rose Byrne to perfection, starts a competition for the top spot amongst the bridesmaids, leading to competitive heights that you really need to see. Uh, But one of the best written comedies of all time. And it says a lot because the Academy for the Oscars does not respect comedies. And this was nominated for Best Writing, and it was not, well, Best Original Screenplay, and it was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. It's relatable. It's hilarious. I think everybody in the cast just plays so well off of one another. And every every one of these cast members gets their time to shine. Outside of the main trio of women, I mentioned Melissa McCarthy. She's one that I don't love in a movie that centers around her. Movies like Identity Thief or uh, what was the other one where she was like a bank robber or something? 
Oh, there's so many. Um, Thunder Force recently. Um, the Heat was another one that she was in. It's it's when she's the center focus. It's just like if you're trying to make a quick buck and do it quickly, you just settle on the more easier jokes, and that's just the problem. Yeah, and and she felt she starts falling into in these in these um, comedic roles where something's centered around her. It often falls into the same thing that I think Chris Farley stuff fell into, which is like this person's fat and that's funny, but like I think she's way I think she's an underrated actress. And roles like this, when she's subdued and the weight doesn't have anything to do with her character. It's just how she's delivering lines. I mean, honestly, I think she was one of the best friends in this movie. And uh, it's such a good role for her. I really enjoy Bridesmaids. It's a a great movie. I'm also not typically a Kristen Wiig fan, but I thought she was perfect in this. And Rose Byrne, like I said, as Mm -hmm. this new rich friend who's overdoing things was great. There are two scenes in this that are iconic scenes that I think any comedy fan will appreciate. One is a, a scene that happens while the ladies are trying on wedding dresses. <laughs> it's one of the funniest gross out scenes that you will see. And then there's another on a plane that is uh, is just a magical scene that I quote with my wife constantly this is a sentimental movie but the drama never bogs down the comedy bridesmaids is just a perfect slice of early 2011 comedy so that's the list what did you have on your honorable mentions what were some of those comedies just real quick that you couldn't fit in your top five all right so i actually there was three that made my honorable mentions so one of them was woody allen's midnight in paris okay now while I still look back at that movie fondly, and it's really one of my all-time favorite movies of all time. It, it, it isn't. It's hard for me to say it's the best Woody Allen comedy of that decade. And even the best Woody Allen comedy isn't really so much of a comedy, and more so a really introspective character study. That after the fact, with all the laughing and drama, you just be like, "Damn, this movie was dark." And that was obviously 2013's Blue Jasmine, which led to Kate Blanchett winning her for er, her. First lead actress Academy Award, I think. And as much as I love Midnight in Paris, a lot of the character actors that are brought that they bring in, as well as even the mainstays like Cat, uh, Kathy Bates as Jill Stein was, my God, great get. Corey Stoll knocks the park out as Ernest Hemingway. But my big thing is the the, the love plot just starts to get a little bit too much near the end where it starts to affect some of the more comedic tones and elements where you still left with a rewarding ending but it, it's it didn't really hold up upon another rewatch for me as in terms of the comedic aspect another one is a 2011 horror film called attack the block i don't know if you ever heard of this by George oh, i Hornet. love attack the block oh such a great movie it's really I was immediately drawn to it beforehand because I'm a big fan of one of the co-score uh, producers, Basement Jack, uh, electronic duo from the UK. Great group. Look them up if you haven't, if you like electronic music. But they, um, the movie just has a consistent wit to it. It knows what it is. There's camaraderie. These teens feel like, you know, even though they're a bunch of shitheads for half the time, like you really sort of like care for them. And the, you know, the effects are good. Nick Frost is hilarious as the weed dealer. And you have the Thomas Middleditch looking guy as a little squeamish guy who's just like always 
at the wrong place at the wrong time. And I just like how it's just so centered. Because, like, a, the whole thing with the pheromones and everything, this is a good movie that's, in a way, becomes, it starts open world and then becomes a true bottle film as it, as for the last hour, it gets stuck within that apartment complex. Yeah, most of it really takes place in that same building. Yeah, and I'm personally a big fan of bottle movies. Bottle movies. I like, it, it just, it really brings a lot to a movie when you can, bring so much out of a character and bring so much action while still only having sort of one location as to work from. And it's sort of very hard to make good movies in that aspect because you got to really have defining characters. And even going back, I rewatched this movie last week. Moses, the guy played uh, by uh, John Boyega. He, if you look back, he has a lot of like little subtle cues that you just pick up on due to his acting that, you know, it sort of subverts your idea that, you know, he just got lucky with Star Wars, even though he's still a fine actor. Yeah. And my last honorable mention is the Armando Yanucci's phenomenal, it's a phenomenal satire, but I, I still couldn't find myself fully loving this movie as much as it was comical. And that's the death of Stalin. Oh yeah. I want to see this. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's hilarious. It's, it's one of those films where it's like at the end of the day, as much as I want you to, recommend this movie for you you sort of have to understand a little bit behind the politics behind stalin's death and sort of the beginnings of what became a struggle before the cold war era and how russia sort of really reformed itself and truly became the soviet union at that point and but it's played to such comedic effect with everybody steve buscemi jeffrey tambor I'm not even blanking on the cast right now because it's just so static. Um, Patty Considine, he's great at the beginning as the guy who records the symphony. Rupert Friend, you you just have so many great actors in this movie. Michael Palin, and this is just like everybody comes in with consistent wit. Now, granted, you you expect to, you never really expect to have a dud from Armando Iannucci, and if you haven't, I'm assuming you've known him because of shows like Veep and a lot of the past political comedic satires that he has made. And I'm assuming yeah, in the you loop. know him from Veep and, yep, and In the Loop, which I love. And, you know, I think between this and his rendition of David Copperfield, I still do like Death of Stalin more as a comedy, but just not enough to really crack my top ten, my top five, rather. But I really, really, really recommend it because Steve Buscemi is great at just everything he does. I love Steve Buscemi. The reason, so this one came out like right when my son was born. And I remember I planned to watch it in the theaters and then didn't get to watch it in theaters because he was born. And then I just never caught back up with it, even after it was released on Blu-ray. So I definitely need to check this out. I've got a couple of honorable mentions here. There's one that probably would have made my top five had I not talked about it two weeks ago. And that is the David Wayne comedy, They Came Together with Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler. I adore this movie. I love it so much. And if you if you listen to my top five underrated list, this was on there. So go watch They Came Together. It's such a good satire of romantic comedies. 21 Jump Street almost made my list. I think those guys are hilarious. And I think that they took an old property and actually made it very, very funny and really good. Uh, speaking of old properties, the Lego movie almost made my list. I think the Lego movie is fantastic. 
the recently released, I think it came out earlier this year, Bad Trip with uh, Tiffany Haddish and uh, Lil Rel Howery and Eric Andre is very, very funny. I need Blockers with John Cena almost made my list. Uh, I just hadn't watched it in a long time, so I couldn't say that it was on my top five. And then one that I think is just a great movie, and it is so funny, but I wouldn't consider it like a straight-up comedy, so it didn't make my list for that reason, is Jojo Rabbit. You know what's funny? I literally was having the same predicament as you. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, like you said, it's not a straight comedy. Because if it was, it would have also made my top five. Because I... Jojo Rabbit was probably one of the greatest experiences I've had in the theater. I've never laughed so hard in my life. It's it's great. And like you said, you don't go into a movie about Hitler, about a child in Germany with Hitler as his imaginary friend as being very funny. And this is one of those rare movies where I've like cried from laughing so hard and then also cried because there are sad things in it. And it's a tough balance to make, but Taika Waititi did a masterful job with that. Wow. So we got some really amazing comedies for people to look for now. Go out, watch some comedies. Uh, one real, one more time, Kevin Montez. So where can people find your work online? Uh, you can find my work at theweeklycoos.blog. You can follow me on Instagram at Pigeon Montez, where I usually, you know, do some musical commentary, talk film, or... You know, you're one of those rare people. You can find me either Monday or Tuesday nights whenever any form of the Bachelor series is airing and you'll see me live tweeting <laughs> all these <laughs> funny anecdotes about love and what I don't know about it based on reality TV. So you can find me in all those sorts of places. Cat, you can find next week I'm dropping a sort of ode to Tony Bennett as he will be releasing his final album due to retirement of his age especially because the pandemic really is going to do a number if he does it so you know i'm going to do an homage to him who i've grown up with because of my aunt love tony bennett so definitely keep an eye out for that that's the weekly blog the weekly and then c-o-o-s dot blog so check that out for album reviews and other cool things like the tony bennett retrospective kevin montez thanks so much for coming on the show this was a lot of fun and i had I, I was glad that you brought up comedies because, you know, sometimes these lists get dark. We do a lot of horror stuff. Yeah. We do a lot of uh, a lot of weapons. And now it's time to lighten things up. And I appreciate that you brought this to the table. Do you have a topic you want to bring to the Force 5 podcast table? Head to www.force5podcast.com for the show request form and you can be a guest. Also, was there a comedy that we missed? Let me know on social media. That's Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram. And your comment might just make it into the show. And of course, if you liked what you heard, please review this show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears, and the top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some hilarious comedies. Force 